Well, again, good morning. Welcome, friends. Happy New Year to everybody. Glad you are here uh, with us this morning. That song, that, that video sounds even better in here than it did in my office. There's something about these bass tubes right here, man. John, if you just put those in my trunk after service, it'd be, it'd be a good day. It'd be a good day. Hey, so glad you're here, especially if you're joining us for the first time, first time in a long time. I know some folks who were with us on Christmas Eve are back uh, this morning. Welcome. Glad that you uh, came back, gave us another shot. We're honored by your presence, man. Hope that you've enjoyed the first few days of 2016, as well as the last few days of, uh, of 2015. I know this is so last year, but uh, if you weren't with us last week, uh, I encourage you uh, to go back online, listen to that message. We did kind of a year in review sermon where we talked about all that God had been doing in this church over the last 12 months and all that we anticipate and expect and are praying for him to do in the next 12 months. And I would love for all of us to be on the same page with that stuff. I'd love for all of us to be on board with all that stuff. And I'd love for all of us to be on our knees as it pertains to all that stuff. So go back and check out that lesson. Uh, I think you would uh, be really blessed by it. This morning, I'm super excited to start a new sermon series uh, to kick off the new year, a series we've entitled Renewed. Uh, let me pray for us as we enter into the word before we dive into the series. God, we ask now that we will encounter you and experience you in a fresh and new way. Would the words in the Bible um, speak to us directly, God? Would the Holy Spirit now breathe into us and empower us, Father, to be and to do and to become the kind of people that we were created to be and to become? Make it so, Father. Bless this time. We invite you into it now. Uh, would you move in powerful ways? In Jesus' name, amen. A lot to talk about this morning, so buckle up. Here we go. There are some great words out there. And being a communication guy, I mean, I just, I love looking at and, and saying and learning about new words. Uh, these words crossed my path the last couple of days. Acquiesce, cantankerous, uh, fantastical, uh, loquacious. Those are just some great words. Even if you don't have a clue what they mean, like I did, you, they're at least fun to say. Right? They're at least fun words to say. But there's another great word out there, and it's a word that I want us to spend the next couple of weeks and even month or two uh, focusing our attention on. And the word is renew. Renew. Renew is defined in this way. Making something new, fresh, and strong again with great force and enthusiasm. Making something new, fresh, and strong again with great force and enthusiasm. That's a great word. That's a great definition. Now, every January, we commit to renewing certain things. Don't we? we renew our exercise patterns, our eating habits, our spiritual disciplines? But this morning, I want us to think about, I want us to talk about what does it mean to really renew our faith in Christ? What does it mean to renew our devotion to this great God that we were just singing about? What does it mean to make our faith new, fresh, and strong again, and to do so with great force and great enthusiasm? Let's find out. The year was 605 BC. This is 600 years before Jesus was born, 2,600 years before you and I were even born. This is a long time ago. An arrogant, ill-mannered, defiant man was trying to take over the world. Here's a picture of that man. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. No, Livia, that's not the one I... Anyway, ah, oh, jeez. The, the man's name at that time was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was the new bully on the block. It was the new superpower of the world. And as most bullies and superpowers tend to do, they were beating people up. They were taking over nation after nation after nation. And one nation they captured was this small little group of people called Judah. 
little band of brothers, this group of people that God had chosen out of the world to bless and serve the world. But in this moment, 2,600 years ago, their world came crashing down around them as King Nebuchadnezzar came through and burned their city, Jerusalem, to the ground. Well, as a gesture of his dominance, King Nebuchadnezzar would take significant pieces of religious paraphernalia uh, from his defeated foes. He would take the things that were important to us and he would place them kind of as this sacrilegious trophy case in his own temple to his own God. So let's say he would take our crosses, he would take our communion plates, he would take our offering boxes and he'd put them in his own temple kind of as a look at my God's better than yours because I got your stuff now. My God's obviously more important because your God couldn't even protect these things. But in addition to taking significant things, King Nebuchadnezzar also decided to take significant people with him. See, as he burned the city down, instead of just exterminating all of his enemies, the king actually enlisted them. Instead of killing his captives, King Nebuchadnezzar actually converted them. See, before he completely destroyed Jerusalem, he gathered up 10,000, the Bible says, of the best of the best. 10,000 young men and women who could serve him, who could be of great benefit to him. His standards were high, young men of noble birth, handsome, athletic, smart, quick to understand. Here's an example of someone like that. Wait, Livy, what's up with the, ah, he was in charge of PowerPoint today. But think about this strategy with me for a second. Instead of just taking your enemy out, you take their best and brightest and you bring them in. You immerse them in your ways and you subtly and not so subtly change who they are. So you start when they're young and impressionable. You send them to Babylon State University with President Nebuchadnezzar. You deconstruct all they've ever known, all they've ever believed. You begin to change everything from their names to their daily routines to who they worshipped. See, the Babylonians were very religious people. And when they came and they took over your city, they didn't stop you from worshipping your God just as long as you now also worship their gods. That's fine to have your God, but you better also pay homage to our God as well. This was tolerance, open-mindedness, and relative truth at its best and its worst. Now let's pause here for a second. Can you think with me, it's going to be difficult, but can you think of another society that mirrors what I just described? Can you think of another society that will let you worship God as long as you don't claim he's the only God? Can you think of another society where tolerance is more valued than truth? Can you think of another society where we take our young people and maybe, I don't know, four, five, six years, we instill in them a very different set of beliefs and values? Can you think of another society where the outside culture is changing our understanding of right and wrong, where the outside culture is coming in and telling us, no, this is where you came from, where the outside culture is telling you, no, this is where you're going. Don't listen to the inside anymore. Listen to us on the outside. See, Babylon is all around us, guys. That's why we can relate to it, because we actually have to live in it. It's happening every day. So what do you do? What do you do in a culture like that? What's your responsibility as a God follower at a time like that? How do you live a life that honors and points to God when you live in a place like that? Those are the questions I want to wrestle with and answer the next couple of weeks. Those are questions that need answers. They remind me of several other questions that need answers. These questions have confused and bewildered people since the beginning of time. Questions like, which came first, the chicken or the chicken sandwich? That's an important question. I think the chicken sandwich. And God was like, in order to get the chicken sandwich, I need chicken. So chickens, here you go. Or how about this? If a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to post it on social media, does it even matter? <laughs> or better, if a man speaks his mind in the forest and there's no woman there to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> These are important questions. How about what impacts behavior more? Nature, nurture, or Nutella? 
<laughs> You've had Nutella, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's like, you'll do some crazy things. Well, the debate that surrounds those questions, well, the debate fails miserably when compared to the debate that surrounds this question. How do Christians connect to the non-Christian culture around them? How do Christians connect to the non-Christian culture around them? Now, you heard me talk about this a little bit as we went through the story last year together. As a Christian, as someone who has pledged their allegiance to Jesus, what is our role in, what is our relationship to a society and a culture that has pledged their allegiance to anyone but Jesus, to everyone but Jesus. What does following God look like in a society that doesn't really like God, doesn't even believe in God? It'd be like asking this, what does it mean to be a, Bron a Broncos fan and live in Seattle? I mean, is it possible? Can you stand up for what you believe? Is it possible to be who you are and who you feel God is calling you to be in that hostile environment? Can you take a stand? And if so, what does that stand look like? What is your posture? What is your, what is your calling as a Christian in that kind of culture? Well, in his book, Center Church, Timothy Keller does a masterful job of summarizing the different approaches that we can take when it comes to engaging our culture. You can reject culture. But this is more or less the withdrawal model where you kind of take the, the approach or the stance of the Amish or the Anabaptists. You literally remove yourself completely from the godless culture around you. You create your own culture up on the hill or out on the farm. You do everything you can to stop the culture from contaminating you, so you run from it. We say separate or run. That's kind of the, the mantra of that mentality. You can try to change your culture. Or this is the model where you work hard to transform the culture around you. You try to bring Jesus into the culture. So the arts, politics, education, business, you become more involved and you're active as a Christian in those settings and try to bring the gospel out of those settings. Typically, you become more involved politically so you can influence the society for good. Right? You bring Jesus and his ideals into the public square. Here he would say propagate or try to convert culture. You can utilize culture. In this camp, you believe that culture is actually an ally, that it's not that bad. In fact, God is at work in the culture around us, and so we just need to simply see what he's doing and partner with him in it. In this particular understanding, you, you see what God is doing, you see what other people are doing, whether Christian or not, and you affirm it, you embrace it, you collaborate with those who are seeking human flourishing. You try to become, as a church, more culturally relevant. You try to do what they do because they're having a lot of success. So let's just be more like the culture. This word would be assimilate, or you would say use it. And your final approach is counterculture. In this model, you try to exist and create a contrast society that stands in somewhat of an opposition to the larger culture. In this one, you are more or less living in the culture, but you're speaking out against the culture. Kind of like a modern-day prophet. You haven't run away to the hills. You were living in it, but you're saying, guys, what you're doing out there is not good. Come in here. Come into a different society. We'll show you what love really looks like. We'll show you what purity looks like. We'll show you what embrace and money and all sex and everything else. We'll show you how to do that stuff in here. It's not out there. So you would say, this one, you negate it. You yell at it. All right, that's Culture 101 class for the day. Thank you for being with us. You're dismissed. Uh, make sure you read Chapter 2 tonight. Be a quiz tomorrow. Okay, that was a lot of information, and I know it was. Sorry, it was a little, little teaching moment. Uh, a few months ago, Beck and I were trying to find a new series to watch together before you go to bed. Uh, she suggested one called Madam Secretary. Anybody watch? Okay, six, perfect. <laughs> well, in the first few minutes of the show, I kid you not, I hear something like this. The citizens-initiated referendum more or less supports the habeas corpus of the kleptocracy, which is slightly better than the Machiavellian monopoly that ruled the party's progressive provisional preferential positions. And I turned to Beck and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to think this hard. Can we just watch something for like stupid people? 
He's like, okay, click, you know. <laughs> when it comes to culture, when it comes to all the different approaches, it's kind of like, do we got to think this hard? Do we really need to work this hard? Come on, it's the new year, man. I was hoping just come and laugh a little bit at church and we get a good word or two. Do we got to think this hard? We do. We got to think this hard. We can't just change the channel right now. This is our calling to engage our culture. How are we supposed to do it? Let me give you an example of how this might play itself out in our society. Christian colleges for years have wrestled with what to do with Greek life, with what to do with fraternities and sororities. Here's why, right? We know that those social groups, at least at state schools, have a reputation that's not very Christian, right? Those groups can struggle with certain things that maybe you wouldn't want people to struggle with on a Christian college. So what do Christian colleges do? What do you do with Greek life? Well, here are your options, right? You could simply ban them from your campus. And some Christian colleges do that. You just take the, the remove approach, right? We're not going to be a part of that. We're not going to do that. They're not going to be here. Remove yourself completely. You could allow them on campus, then you could encourage your strong Christian leaders to infuse those groups, and hopefully if they take positions of leadership in them, those groups will become more Christian. Right? That would be more of the converting model. You with me? You could allow them on campus, you could just let them do their thing, not care at all. You could just say, hey, people are going to find friends, people are going to find community. Those groups aren't inherently evil. We'll just let them do good things and we'll embrace and celebrate the good things. That would be kind of the utilizing model. Or you could allow them on campus, but then you could kind of create these subgroups, these separate groups that maybe speak out against the fraternities and sororities. No, we're not going to be performance-based. No, we're not going to be um, attraction-based. No, we're not going to be popularity-based. We're going to exist differently. Everyone's what, right? You create this separate group, and you kind of speak out against that group. See, see how this plays itself out? That's just an example I thought of that might help us make sense of this. But how you answer that question of, of what's our role, what's our responsibility in that situation, that's going to change everything. I mean, you can run, hide, befriend, become like, yell, partner with, preach to, join. I mean, what do you do? What's your option? What would God, what would Christ want you to do? Now, I imagine that most of us haven't spent much time thinking about the different camps that are out there, and we probably wouldn't know where we plant our flag if I asked you to right now. I was thinking of like a show of hands. Who of you want this? Who of you want this? I thought, yeah, that was a dumb idea. So I'm not going to do it. But here's the thing, right? If you are unaware of what you are called to do in this culture, then chances are you are unaware of what this culture is doing to you. If you are unaware of what you're called to do in the culture around you, then you are unaware of what the culture is probably doing to you. All right, so what does God say about this? What does is, what is God say? What does Christ say? What does the Bible say? Tim Keller's one thing, Thomas is another, but what does God say? Hang on, because we're going to go through a lot of texts right here, but I need you to listen to them all. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for your city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? No longer good for anything except to be thrown out and hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then hide it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. John 17, 14 and following, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am the world, Jesus says. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. 
Ephesians 5, 6, and 11. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from them. Be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. James 4, 4. You adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world means enmity towards God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Okay, got it all figured out? Wonderful. Let's pray. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, If only it were that simple. We got to spend some time on this stuff because if if I'm honest with you, it looks like and it sounds like these passages are saying competing things. It looks like they're saying different things, don't they? I mean, seek the peace and prosperity of the city you live in. Well, I would suggest befriending it, getting close to it, utilizing it. But then James says, friendship with the world, hatred towards God. Being salt and light means that you are in close contact, literally touching the stuff that you're trying to preserve and heal and protect. But then God says, come on out of the world. Don't associate with certain people. Jesus asked God to keep us in the world, but then he says, come out and be separate from the world. You see the problem here? Some passages suggest rejecting culture. Some suggest partnering with culture. Some suggest changing culture. Well, which is it? What am I supposed to do? Well, the short answer is yes. Yes. Don't you love and hate when when someone answers a, a multiple choice question with yes? Although sometimes it works in your benefit, doesn't it? Would you like a piece of s'mores cheesecake? Turtle pecan cheesecake? or lemon meringue cheesecake? Yes. Yes. But I honestly think that's God's answer to us as it pertains to our call to interact with culture. Yes. Here's something I want you to write down or take a picture of because this is an important truth. Christ is calling for his followers to maintain a critical balance of critically important biblical teachings. We are called to balance biblical teaching. And you see this in Jesus' own words. Separation and participation. Adaptation and confrontation. In the world, but not of the world. At home, yet a pilgrim just passing through. This balance is probably going to drive some of us crazy. Right? We want an answer. We want to know exactly what we're supposed to do in every single situation. We love and we tend to gravitate when it comes to spectrums to the ends of the spectrum, don't we? It's like it's got to be this way or that way, and there's no other way. That's not what Jesus says. See, it's easier, I know, to run and hide. It's easier just to yell. It's easier just to keep a shield against our kids or in front of our kids. It's easier to ignore the world. It's easier just to kind of let the world do its own thing. It's easier just to do your own thing. I mean, it's easier just to take a stance, to take a side, and just kind of let bygones be bygones. But that's not what Christ is calling us to do. He's calling us to balance these truths. They don't contradict themselves. He's asking you to be wise in when and how you live them out. That's why Romans 12.1 is so important. It's our memorized one for the month. It says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, after you've renewed your mind, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, Paul says it's not simply a matter of making up your mind. 
It's a matter of renewing your mind. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Leviticus. It's a favorite of most of ours, right? We love that book. But in particular, that book, it's really more or less kind of a handbook on how to be holy. God lays out exactly what he wants from his people, from what to eat to what to wear. It's like, do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat this, touch this, don't you dare touch that. There's no book of Leviticus for us, though. There's no book of Leviticus for the New Testament. In the 21st century, there's no handbook saying exactly what I'm supposed to do in every single situation I find myself in. It would be nice. I mean, I, I might take a look at the handbook. Tattoos and piercings, page 6. Muslims, page 9. Alcohol and marijuana, page 12. Pop culture, page 15. Giving, page 17. And retirement accounts and vacation homes, page 21. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it would be nice to have. But I, I bet if we, if we had it, we would, we would do something. We'd probably turn off our brains. And we just robotically respond to everything God said in that book. But you see, the world doesn't need a robot. They need a renewed mind. Your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your classmates, they, they don't need a robotic response to Christianity. They need a renewed Christ-like mind to know what to do in every situation, to know how to balance biblical truth, to know when you do this and when you do that. That's the thing. We all want to pin Jesus down, but you can't pin that man down. I wish he just yelled at everybody. That'd be easier, right? We're just supposed to be like Jesus, so just yell at everybody. But he didn't do that. I wish he just uh, told everybody, just repent of your sins and do this, but he didn't do that. I wish he told everybody, you just need to do this, and he didn't do that. You read the situation, in one moment he did this, and the next moment he did this. In another moment, he kind of did the opposite, but then the next day he did something totally different than that. You can't pin him down. It's because it's a balance of biblical truth. It's a renewed mind that we need. Look back at Paul's words with me in Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, in view of everything God has done for, for us, from creation to salvation, in light of his incredible patience, in light of his incredible love, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Recognize that everything you do matters to God. Your marriage matters. Your money matters. Your attitude matters. Your, your actions matter. Don't hold anything back from God. Give him your whole life. Say, God, you made it all, so you know how to do it all. You know how to fix it all. Here, I give it all to you. That's worship, Paul says. Don't conform to the patterns of this world anymore. Yes, God made the world, so that informs how we think about it. But sin has also kind of messed up the world. That also informs how we think about it. And if you're not careful, the world, this fallen place, this confused, misguided place will take you captive. Don't conform to the patterns of this world. Instead, be transformed, be different, be unique, be a breath of fresh air to this world and in this world. Live like God wants you to live, like he originally created you to live. How? By the renewing of your mind, by thinking like Jesus, by thinking Christianly, by taking the mindset of Christ who is able to balance and respond so perfectly and so appropriately in every moment to every situation, then, then you'll be able to test God's will. Then you'll know exactly what to do. Then you'll know when to reject, when to conform, when to confront, when to embrace, when to this, when to that. You'll know because your mind has been renewed because you're thinking like Jesus. So I am super excited about the next six weeks because we're going to see what this looks like in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel shows us how to balance biblical truth and how to balance all those cultural understandings in a, in a culture like ours. Daniel and his three friends are going to teach us so many things. They're going to teach us how to renew our minds. These are some of the things Daniel and his friends are going to teach us. And if you're looking for a New Year's resolution, if you're looking for something to kind of devote yourself to, this list is about as good as I got. 
How do you confront the idols in our society? How do you confront the things that people are worshiping and call it out for what it is? How do you speak and share the gospel message with other people, especially those who might be openly hostile to the message? How do you live counterculturally, but how do you do so for the common good? How do you answer the difficult questions that our culture is asking? Because there's some tough ones out there. How do you find answers to those? How do you develop a heart for the city? How do we care about and how do we develop a love for Littleton? And then how do we integrate faith, take it more than just a Sunday morning thing or a quiet time thing every day? How do we incorporate it into an everyday, all the time kind of thing? How do we integrate it into every area of our life? This is the book of Daniel. And I want this to be us. I want this to be West Bulls. I want us to confront the idols. I want us to speak and share the gospel. I want us to live counterculturally. I want us to answer difficult questions. I want us to have a heart for the city. And I want us to integrate our faith into all we do. That's a resolution. Hey, I still want you to eat better and exercise more. Yes. Would you hold me accountable too? But I want to do that. That's what I want my 2016 to be about. And if we as a church all commit to doing that, guys, I, I cannot wait to see what happens. So I want you to join us next week and in the next five or six weeks as we go through the book of Daniel and figure out what it looks like to have our minds renewed. What it means and what it looks like to live out Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me pray that over us and then we will go into communion together. God, this is a difficult conversation that we're having this morning, and we thank you that you were here with us uh, as part of it. We want to honor you. We want to be like you. We want to live for you. And yet, Lord, we live in a society that makes that hard at times. Uh, from what's important to what's right and wrong to how you're supposed to spend our money um, to, to how we're supposed to engage in sex, sex stuff, God, it's just it's a tough society. It doesn't, it doesn't teach biblical truth. It doesn't value biblical truth. And so we're, we're struggling as, as Bible believers, God, as to what to do in this culture, as to how to interact and how to be like Jesus in this culture. It's hostile. It's cold. It's, it's against you. So how do, we, how do we bring you into it? How do we live like you in it, Lord? Give us wisdom over the next couple of days and weeks and months to know how to do that. We want to bless our culture. We want to serve our culture. We want to challenge it where it's wrong. We want to make it better where it's weak. God, we want to call it out where it's evil. We want to love it. We want to do all these things. And so we need to have this balance. And only you, only your spirit can give us that balance. So we just ask God now uh, that you would come and help us all to kind of think this next week on what is our take on culture? Am I just going with the flow? Do I just, do I just drink the Kool-Aid that anybody gives me? Uh, God, what, what do I do? Do I, do I yell at it all the time? Do I feel like it's my personal responsibility to fix it all? Now, what is my understanding? And would, we, would you give us your understanding? Would you help us to live out Romans 12, 1 and 2 over the next couple of months? Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.